Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we're thrilled to bring you my conversation with Turner Novak, founder of Banana Capital. While fairly new to venture, Turner continually brings some of the most interesting perspectives about technology and venture, and also happens to be one of the best followers on social media. He's also got a great backstory in how he broke into VC and ultimately within a few years was able to found Banana Capital in January of 2021 with 9.99 million in commitments, including several institutions participating. Before starting his own fund, he was a general partner at Gelt VC and also interned at pre-seed firm of Four Capital. We covered a lot of ground on this podcast, including the value of social media and VC, how he thinks being stage agnostic can be a successful strategy, and his views on the public and private markets and where we're headed. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Pacific Western Bank, a full-service commercial bank with over $34 billion in assets. The venture banking team at PacWest specializes in financial products and services for both startups and the venture and private equity funds that back them. I've worked with many of their team members over the last two decades, and I can attest to their commitment to bringing a high-touch and personalized experience for every startup and fund manager client they have. So whether you're a founder or a fund manager at any stage of development and you want to find out more, Check them out at www.packwest.com. Hey, Turner, it's great to see you, man. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Hey, awesome. Thanks for having me. This will be a lot of fun given your backstory, which is really unique, and then in all the great content that you put on Twitter and TikTok regarding venture and, and tech in general. But let's get back to how you got into this, why you became interested in being an investor. And then ultimately, how did you actually break in when you didn't have the traditional Silicon Valley networks that a lot of people that get into venture do? The first time I really got interested in venture was, and I knew it was possible to do it from Michigan, was I read a post from Blake Robbins at Ludlow saying, I forget the title, it was how I became a VC from Michigan. And it was always something I thought was fascinating because this intersection of all these different things I wanted to do when I grew up and what I was interested in. Uh, but yeah, lived in Michigan. I, I kind of thought I might have moved to a big city at some point, but ended up getting married right after school. Met my girlfriend, now my partner during school. So we never moved away. And uh, yeah, so I, I remember reading Blake's post. I was like, oh, cool. So it's possible. And that was really the first thing that kind of got me. I mean, I had joined the investment club in college and was like the president of the club for a couple of years. And I just loved investing. And I was mostly investing in venture style things in the public markets anyways. Kind of knew that's what I was going to do. But I never actually thought it was possible until that moment when I first read that. Yeah. So, so you read the post. It inspires you. You're like, I think I can do venture from you know a place like Michigan. But it's still requires you to find a, a landing spot, have somebody believe in you in the early days. And, and I know you interned at a four. How did you go about actually getting in front of folks like that to even intern and, and or even ultimately get a job? It was a long process. Uh, initially, it started, I had just started tweeting, essentially. I'd used Twitter for, I don't know, a decade for fantasy football. <laughs> I think that was initially what I used it for a lot. Um, and I just noticed, oh, it seems like a lot of people are on Twitter talking about this stuff. It's a way to kind of share your thoughts, you know, build a brand. I kind of, it's a funny word to say, but, you know, like showing how you're thinking about things. And uh, I kind of just slowly started to meet people that way. And initially, I just kind of picked a, a niche or like certain things to talk about. 
with the end goal of eventually making the jump into VC. So I kind of started, I think the first couple months I was on Twitter, all I talked about was Snapchat and just how I thought it was coming back. I mean, the consensus at the time was this is the next MySpace. Uh, and I was very firmly just thought that was just wrong. And if I just put my thoughts out there eventually over time, it might take a while, but you know, it kind of show how I was thinking about things. And then started tweeting a lot about TikTok when it first launched, just same thing. It was kind of crazy at the time, but I was just like, I mean, it's the best product I've ever used. I think this is going to be the most valuable company in the world one day. And again, crazy things to say, but that's what you have to do to be a good investor. Um, and then probably one of my big, I guess, the, the smarter things that I did that kind of accelerated things was I made this fantasy VC portfolio. So it's fantasy football combined with investing, right? Like you, I had a fake million dollars, picked some startups, fake invested. Honestly, I had no idea how these companies were doing in most cases. It was, you know, going on Google, Reddit, uh, product hunt, listening to a couple of the founders would go on a podcast. And, you know, it was a 30, 50 minute conversation. It was kind of like you'd talk to them. They'd talk about the business. Maybe they'd share some metrics and how they were doing. Uh, but it was basically just essentially what's the business model? Does it make sense? You know, does it seem like a good venture bet? Uh, so yeah, kind of hacked together this fake portfolio. Uh, and one of the founders actually found it and threw it up on his Twitter. And he had 100,000 followers at the time and was just like, this is the best analysis of my company I've ever seen. And I was like, whoa. Did not expect that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. What year was that? That was around what, 2018? Yeah, it was the summer of 2018. I kind of just used the, that type of stuff over, you know, it was like a two year period, you know, maybe a little under two years, but, you know, just DMing people pretty strategically, trying to line up meetings, San Francisco. And if enough people said yes, I'd actually book a flight and like take time off work to go. And it was a, it was a very long process. Um, probably had about five interviews all at once for kind of associate principal type roles, moving to San Francisco. Uh, and a four was looking for someone to help out part time as an intern. Uh, but they were open to someone working remotely. And that was kind of insane. A couple of years ago, like that was off the table at every firm that, you know, th like that was they weren't even open to discussing that because there's all these great candidates in San Francisco. And so <laughs> I ended up taking that job. I and it was interesting because I remember having a conversation with Anamitra, my old boss, and I told him I'm just going to quit my job and I'll work for you full time. But, you know, you, you can treat me like I'm an intern. And it actually took me a couple of days to convince him. I was just like, don't worry, like I will drive for Uber. I'll do whatever I need to do to just make money. Um, and what I ended up doing was I couldn't afford my mortgage. So we just sold the house we were living in. And then I had a rental property, too, that I would bought. Um, it was like a couple of years prior. My mom had got some money from her divorce and I used that and my tax return or tax refund as a down payment on a rental. And then she lived with me. So she like prepaid me 12 months of rent and lived with me in this house. Um, so I had a ton of equity in the house and I, and I sold it also. And then, and then we uh, used that to live off of for a while. So that was the initial kind of how it happened. That's a great story. And it certainly epitomizes some of the sacrifices you made to get into venture. And I'm curious in terms of when you started actually putting money in the ground between the constructing that fantasy portfolio and then pre banana capital, which we'll of course talk about later. What was that process like? And what were the early days of your investment career? It was a lot of fun. It was an interesting story. So I had met Keith Wasserman, my partner at Gelt, you know, a couple of years prior on Twitter, 
you know, he'd been following me. We'd met up a couple of times when I had flown out to LA to interview, meet with people. And he was dead set convinced on, I was going to be a good VC. We were going to raise this venture fund from his real estate investors. And then I was going to invest the fund, you know, split everything three ways. And he, he kind of convinced me that like, he, he was more for this than I was, that I was going to team up with them and, and we were going to do this fund. So kind of how it went was I joined, uh, you know, October 1st of 2019. We started investing their personal balance sheet uh, and, you know, kind of built a deck around the portfolio companies that I've, I had invested in. Uh, and our first close was set for March 31st of 2020, which <laughs> if you remember what it was like then, it was pretty crazy. It made it a little bit difficult to get everybody across the finish line. Uh, it also, you know, the the dynamics of running a $1.5 billion AUM real estate fund and then a $5 million was what we were shooting for a venture fund. Um, you know, it, they were really focused on the real estate business. And I was trying to raise this fund that I honestly had no idea what I was doing, to be completely honest with everybody listening. Like, never raised a fund before. I thought I might do this in 10 years. Uh, so I was basically just forced to go try to fundraise. And, you know, a lot of people I was talking to, they were saying like, you know, I can, you know, I would love to invest in your fund, but that this doesn't really make sense. If you ever do your own thing, maybe we can talk about it. And so when you, when you talk about what it was like investing it, you know, I, I remember like in March, I think, it, you know, I had a couple founders on a wait list, like, okay, you know three things I've committed to doing the first close at the end of the month, and I can send you the money. And then we don't, we don't exactly have a first close. There's a little bit of money that came in, but you're basically, there's a global pandemic. The economy is potentially like the stock market's collapsing. These founders need money. And even over the course of the summer, it was basically like, I'm in to give you the money. I just need eight weeks to like raise it. And I've got a couple of people that actually need it more than you. And like, I was basically raising a hundred K I'd wire it to a founder, raise 50 K wire it to a founder. Uh, it really affected the kind of companies that I was investing in. And I basically just had to have a really, really good relationship with the founder. I mean, it was basically founders that didn't need my money at the end of the day. You know, I was coming in at the tail end of like a $8 million round or something or a couple million dollar round. And I wasn't making the difference. As you were doing that, you're right trying to close during the uh, the beginning of the pandemic, you know, you'd spend a lot of time looking at the uh, the public markets and March 18th, I think it was a low point where we saw the markets really dip to, I think the Dow was something like 18,000 and everyone was really nervous. I mean, if you talk to VCs, everyone was thinking about triage, thinking about their existing portfolios, LPs had completely stopped, but here you are, you know, you close, you started investing, but you were still pretty early. You know, you did an internship at a four. Now you're investing out of a uh, fairly small fund. Why were founders allowing you in into these? It seems like these rounds were oversubscribed. How much of it was related to the fact that you had been putting your thoughts out there? And I do want to get into this creator economy and why what we're seeing right now is is so many funds that are 10 million or under raising in, in different ways than the past. But tell us a little bit about what really helped you get into those deals in the early days. It was usually people that I had a re an existing relationship with who they, I remember one founder specifically said, you know, I could raise money from anyone, but I wanted to have you just because I know what you've done over the last couple of years. And I just I want to work with Turner, not logo of some big fund. So that was generally what it was. A couple of them were my fantasy companies, like fantasy portfolio that I was like following on to, quote unquote, 
through like for real. Uh, and, and typically those, you know, I had a good relationship. They were just pumped that, holy cow, some dude from the internet is excited about our company and they, and they wanted to have me in. That That's typically kind of how and, and why they were having me in. I mean, maybe I had, you know, interesting things to say or share. Um, and then even as a, writing publicly about certain things for a while, I mean, people start to see how you think and, you know, maybe you kind of have a track record where, you know, maybe people want to be a part of your track record per se, like, so taking an early bet on them. Um, so that's mostly what it was. And then other times it was, it wasn't like hot competitive rounds. It was just, I was just someone on the list of a couple other people they were raising money from, and maybe they didn't even fill the round up kind of a thing. Um, that's typically more been my style is I really don't try to do these hot rounds. I just think the lower the valuation, the better, like you got to go earlier rather than later. So. So you're doing this and then ultimately do decide to launch your own firm, which you raised. And I think it was 9.99 million for the first fund. What we've seen, of course, with things like rolling funds and AngelList is this new generation of investor that, you know, is raising in one of two ways. They raise typical, which is raise a small fund, you do it as a private placement. And then there's this new method that, you know, has actually been around for a while, the 506C, which is you can go out and solicit. You decided not to go that route, which for me, it was a little surprising because you do have this major Twitter presence. And a lot of the folks that have large Twitter followings really weaponize it by getting in front of a lot of people through a public fundraise. Why did you decide to go the route you did? And what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I think for me, I am trying to get an institutional capital base as fast as possible. And so a lot of conversations I had with institutional investors, there's a lot of questions around it. And me, I was an LP. I worked in endowment for three and a half years. I was also looking at maybe what the incentives look like for someone investing that fund. And it was a little bit different than I'm going to build a institutional investment firm. Like they really feel like an evolution of scope programs to me. That's how I think about them. I mean, I know so many people that, you know, you in, instead of being a scout for a big fund, you launch a rolling fund and you're essentially a scout for like 10 or 20 firms then instead of just one. Um, I probably could have done it and it might, may have made my life easier, but over the long term, I mean, I think it's important to have a more permanent institutional capital base. That's ultimately what I'm going for. So I've just been trying to build those relationships and had a couple of those people in my fund and I think just showing that I'm trying to do it a little bit more institutional from day one, it just sets the messaging right. And so that was really the main reason. I also honestly didn't want to take oxygen away from other people who probably needed it. Like I, I didn't have to do it. So I didn't want to, you know, take away from anybody else who actually, you know, maybe the, doing a 506C actually really benefited them. I, I was lucky enough that just kind of all the people that I met over the last couple of years, I didn't have to do it publicly. You look at that first fund and, you know, I was thinking about fund sizing and there's a lot of, lot of discussion that, hey, $10 million and under funds are really interesting for, for a number of reasons because your low friction checks to those founders and generally speaking, it's easier to get in at 50,000 or 100,000 than it is at, you know, one, two or 3 million. Was there any, anything intentional about why you raised 9.99? Because based on what you just said, it's, it sounds like you had plenty of interest and you probably could have gone above that. Why you know, effectively cap it at 999? I knew that I was going to have more than 99 LPs <laughs> just based on, it was a lot of 
friends, people that were interested in, you know, with smaller checks. I think the smallest check I took was $1,000 just from like a founder that I'd backed a year prior. So I had a bunch of found like seven founders that I'd invested in in the past who gave me like very immaterial amounts of money, but it's good signal. Also friends who, who work at tech companies, maybe like, you know, they're like a PM at Snapchat. They know all the people leaving Snap starting companies. Those people aren't writing me million dollar checks. Um, and I knew that I would get way past that 99 LP threshold just based on how I was constructing it. I ended up having some institutional investors that came in at the end who wrote really weird small checks to, to make it work. Like, you know, some of the smallest checks they'd ever written. Uh, and I wasn't planning on that, but it was nice to just get them on board. I got a couple commitments to the next fund kind of a thing, which was, it was awesome to just kind of already start building towards that. Again, I, I also, this is pretty key. I didn't want to go out and raise a massive fund because I think it's the different dynamics investing a $10 million fund and a 50 or a hundred million dollar fund. And those two numbers were both thrown out. And I, I just remember thinking like, no way, <laughs> like that's, that's insane to think that I should go out and do that right away. So, you know, they'll happen eventually. And I've been working on kind of synthetically through SPVs, you know, you write a 200K check from the fund, but you put in a million dollars total or you put in 500K total to just start showing that, you know, the economics on this fund, it still totally makes sense, but you're kind of almost, you know, training and getting everything ready for when you do do the next fund. I mean, it's just like a VC will tell the founder, like just start doing the things before you need to. Like, you know, I just think about it the same way. You know, what's my product? What's my distribution? You know, like I'm investing my distributions, like founders taking my money essentially or how they know about me. So I kind of think about it in the same way. So as a founder of a company, I'm just a founder of an investment firm. Right. No, I, and I agree. A lot of times I do say that if you're raising a, a first time fund and you're starting a firm, you're basically an entrepreneur. You're writing checks versus writing code. But ultimately, you have to build, you have to build your brand and you have to execute and you have a product that you deliver to founders and your LPs. So, so what I heard is 10 million allowed you to take more than 100 because I think you could go up to 250 LPs if you wanted to under $10 million. The other thing, though, is a lot of people don't stay at that 10 million and under and they level up to something bigger, you know, 20, 30, 40 million, you know, in a fund two or maybe even a fund three. And oftentimes what happens is the investment model is dramatically different because you're writing bigger checks. Oftentimes that means the value you have to provide these founders is more than just, hey, I want to get in, here's 50 or 100K. How do you think about scaling yourself up in terms of the product that you're providing these founders as you invariably will grow your, your base, given that you have institutional LPs who I know want to see bigger funds in the future? I think the most value an investor can provide to a founder is just by default, just giving them money, having conviction and just not bugging them, getting out of the way, not ruining anything. That's like 90% of it, I really think. I think the best founders don't actually need help 99% of the time. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is just you basically find things that you have really high conviction in or you have a thesis in and it's just it's not about doing a ton of due diligence, dragging people along. It's just like, I already know that this is what I want to invest in because I've just spent so much time thinking about it, talked to or looked at so many companies or going super fast. I mean, this past weekend, I just made my biggest first initial check ever. I spent the entire weekend doing a bunch of research, 
wrote my memo for it, actually sent it to the founder to read and like show him my thoughts and everything. I, I just accelerated everything, just went super quickly. I mean, I think you have to, you have to be super fast. Being through a bunch of like portfolio companies raising like a bunch of follow on rounds, the people that aren't moving fast and are just dragging their feet and don't have conviction, they're, they're missing out. So there's another dynamic of like moving fast, it's easier to mess up. But I think you do have to just have a ton of conviction and, and you have to go fast. And that's really the best thing you can give founders. And uh, like, you know, you can maybe have a couple things. I mean, I've helped founders. I'm sure you want to talk about this later, but with memes and like marketing strategy and, and just like every VC, you know, you can help with fundraising, you can help with recruiting. Uh, but for me, like, I really don't do anything unique that another VC can't do. So I, I never really pitch this value add because I just think it's kind of silly at the end of the day. For me, it's just like, I really want to invest. Here's why, like, here, here's the money. I can wire it to you the next day. Like, I'm ready to go. I don't care who else is investing. And typically for the founders I'm investing in, that's what they need the most. So, and yeah, I, I'm really not trying to sneak in any rounds and like prove, you know, why I'm worth it. It's just, I just don't think that's the, the way I want to invest. So eh, it works for me so far. At what point does that actually matter? There's like conventional wisdom. And if you talk to LPs, just say, all right, Turner, you know, you're going up from whatever your fund is. You're, now you're writing bigger checks. I think that in order to win in a competitive market, because there's so many seed funds out there, you have to have some kind of superpower. Something that you're providing these founders that's tangible that they're saying, hey, I want him on my cap table because of X. Could be customer introductions, could be this. And everyone plays that up, right? Like in those... VC, LP meetings, VCs always talk about that. It sounds like you say, you know, at the earliest stages, it's really over-indexed on things like high conviction, speed, kind of get out of the way and provide the capital that they need. But is that something that scales up? If you're raising a hundred or $200 million fund and now writing two to $3 million checks, do you still think that's that would be your philosophy? Or do you think that at that point, yeah, you need to start to drive different type of value propositions? In theory, yes, you probably should. But again, like I really don't think the best founders really care. They just want people to give them money. Like I can't tell you how many times the founders like, yeah, I'm going through you know the two month fundraising process, or and how many times it just take. Wow, somebody just made me an offer after our first meeting. I'm just gonna take it. Like that happens so much more than what is publicly discussed. So I really, at the end of the day, I think it is just having conviction and speed, and we've kind of seen it with. We saw it with SoftBank, who maybe they had some good ideas. And now we're seeing it with all these crossover funds that are coming into the private markets. These are like very solid investors, people who put up 30 to 50% IRRs over long periods of time. Um, I mean, I think even the, the big ones that we all know about, I mean, they're just sub 30% IRR. I mean, it's better than most VCs at the end of the day. These people are good investors. They come in prepared. I mean, they come in with pre-built models and assumptions on these companies and ask them three questions and then they know if they're going to invest or not. I mean, so I, I think at the end of the day, yeah, it, it kind of is defensible in some some senses. And I think there's also founders that do maybe want some help. Um, but then I've also seen too, some founders actually get disenfranchised from that help. Like they're just like, I, I took this deal because there was all this value promised and it, it wasn't actually there. So I, like, I'm never doing that again. Um, and I think that's just becoming more and more prevalent. And part of that is a function of the capital markets and where we're at. And that could very easily change. So 
you know, I don't have very hard set in stone rules on it right now. I think for me, I am working on building out more sustainable distribution value add, maybe in that sense. Um, and maybe it's more related to, to memes or helping get the word out about what you're doing. But I don't really think that's my, it's my value add. I mean, I think my, my, dis my differentiation in NLP's eyes is that everything I'm doing is like something they've never really seen or invested in before. So that's typically why people are investing right now. And I have some ideas on longer term, you know, defensibility in the model, but uh, still playing around with a lot of stuff. You have a lot of latitude in terms of, you know, what you invest in when it comes to stage regions, you know, valuations and all those things. And I think there is a unique model that I think is really interesting, especially at where you are right now. The other thing I was going to bring up is social media and, and the creator economy, which obviously over the last five to 10 years has exploded. I remember you used to tweet about really serious things and, you know, you still do every, every now and then with some deep analysis, but at the same time, over the last couple of years, you've really created a brand around things like memes, both on Twitter and TikTok. What a lot of people often ask me is that when people do that and they're building these big brands, how does it actually help the investing model? You know, is it a sourcing thing? Is it winning? Is it a combination of the both? How do you cut through the noise invariably that you get? I'm sure you have plenty of DMs on your Twitter of, you know, founders. Because I, I think it was very intentional, very strategic in many ways. But tell us, why did you start switching your style and what that's meant for, for you from an investor standpoint? Like I mentioned earlier, I think about it as I'm a, a company, I'm a startup. Every VC will tell the startup, the startup founders, you need to build, a, you're fighting against incumbents that have distribution. They have a bunch of existing things they do. You probably won't beat them head on. What kind of product can you build that's differentiated and hopefully over the long term differentiated where you also become an incumbent over time? I mean, that's ultimately what VCs are investing in. So that's really how I thought about it as an investor. It's like, OK, I'm competing against incumbent venture firms. There's thousands of them. A lot of them kind of do the same thing. I basically just said, how can I literally just do the opposite and do things that are unique to what I'm kind of doing and building and just essentially build a investment firm, a brand, like theses that are almost just completely the opposite of what everyone else is doing. Uh, and you don't you don't quite inverse ev everything, but you do pick apart certain things that maybe you think, huh, if I literally just do the opposite, this is actually better in this case. So I'll just do that instead. You kind of find white space. So uh, initially it was more serious content. It was just trying to show how I was thinking about things, building a track record and I think that worked over time. You know, I kind of think of the content piece as there's all these different people that you're trying to hit. You want founders of companies, people who want to build $100 billion businesses. You want them coming to you and talking to you. You also think about the angel investors who might have some, have some deal flow. You might think about the VCs who also might have some deal flow, might want to follow on. You also think about the public market investors who are coming earlier, also don't want them shorting your company when it goes public. You want them bringing the price up and supporting it in the public markets. Um, and there's, I mean, there's also LPs. You want to attract capital from LPs. So I kind of thought about what kind of stuff could I put out there. And it was, it was really the more serious stuff. It was typically deep dives on companies that people weren't really talking about at the time, like Snap, ByteDance, um, Pindodo was a big one. Um, that also really kind of overlapped with my thesis as an investor. I'm doing mostly consumer stuff, um, which, you know, it's, there's not as many people doing that. Um, so you know, pitch, pitching it to an LP, 
giving you a little bit of a different exposure. Uh, and then I, it was over time I had started ghost tweeting for meme accounts on like tech Twitter and there's every tweet would do insanely well. And, and so I got to a point where I was like, man, I should just start doing this for my own account because I'm leaving some stuff on the table. It was, it was risky for sure. In the same sense as a big established venture firm thinking like, we're going to start posting a bunch of crazy stuff online instead of these serious blog posts about how to run a sales process or like how to hire a board member or how to cold email us or make a pitch deck. It was something that no one else was doing. There are some VCs that, that kind of do it. I was just like, screw it. It's going to be my entire thing. Um, and the more I was thinking about it, at the end of the day, the reason that venture firms do that stuff, it's just a top of funnel brand awareness. It's, it's pretty insane how much top of funnel you get when you just constantly have things that you're doing, making like blowing up the founder group chats, making everybody laugh. Um, it gets when you talk about inbound so much stuff along some, some strain of, Hey, raising around, I don't really know very many VCs don't, don't like following them, but I really wanted to reach out to you because I think you get it and like want to chat or, you know, our rounds coming together. Here's the people they're investing. I just wanted to talk to you before we close it out because I just really wanted, I value your opinion, want to have you on board. Uh, but it's so many times founders that are, you know, they're like in Indonesia or something. And, you know, and I asked him, like, how did, how did you know to reach out to me? He's like, oh, I saw your TikToks or like my, my one friend just, you know, he loves your stuff. He thinks you're hilarious. So I just wanted to talk to you. You know, I'm not raising any money right now, but it's a lot of that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, uh, it, it was really, you know, dialing it back. I was just thinking about what products do I need to build to allow founders and, and LPs to, to, to give me money and take my money at the end of the day. It was just building something different that I think will generate really good returns over the long term. And that was fun too. That was another thing is I just, I think, I think too many people take themselves too seriously. Uh, and I don't think you have to take yourself 100% seriously. You can dial it back just a little bit. So that's another thing I kind of wanted to do. Yeah, I'll tell you, the content's great. And it, you know, it's memorable. And for a lot of founders, you know, ultimately, they sort of feel like they know you before ever meeting you. And they kind of know your personality. And people do want to work with people they like. I do think that, you know, in today's world, especially like in the early days, I've always seen this, the founder or the partner brand will far exceed the actual firm brand. And it's really about who am I working with? So I think you've done a, like a phenomenal job, but conventional wisdom, like I was, you know, you talk to these LPs, especially the institutional ones, they have their own boxes that they like to fill in. You know, they talk about differentiation, but if you're too differentiated and everything's inverse, 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 they get a little nervous too. It is a high risk sort of maneuver in terms of some stuff you put out. How do you balance that? And how did you get the institutionals to be excited about such a different way of doing things? I guess that it's working so far. That's probably the, <laughs> I guess, the short answer. Uh, I mean, essentially, I'm trying to do a bottoms up crossover fund. So I look at all these public market hedge funds creeping early and earlier. You know, they're doing like Series B, Series A. I think it's really hard to be a good pre-seed and seed and even Series A investor. So my internship at a four was pre-seed. The Gelt Fund was mostly pre-seed and seed with a little bit of A. Banana is mostly pre-seed to seed with a little bit of B and C. Um, and I've always been talking about public markets. I mean, I have a ton of theses out there of companies where, you know, if, if I would have invested, it would have looked really good. So I'm kind of building the public markets component. And essentially, 
you know, it's going to be a bottoms up crossover fund. I can be the first check. I can write 200K in a company. I can do 2 million at the Series C, 100 million in the public markets, uh, you know, different funds, obviously. But essentially, you, you're just like these crossover funds, but you can be the, you have the DNA to source and be the very first one in. Um, and you're able to follow up over time. You can come in for the first time at the D, like you're super nimble. Um, and it tilts a little bit more consumer, but you can invest any sector, stage, check size, geography. Um, you know, th there's good founders building things everywhere. And my whole, I guess the the DNA of banana has all been on the internet and, and not going on existing networks that already exist. And I'm, I mean, I'm building a bunch of those now, but I'm thinking, you know, I just had to think about what were my advantages as an investor and just lean into those. Uh, and kind of walking walking LPs through it, showing them how it's working. I mean, I have a, just have a bunch of case studies of invested in the seed, was able to follow up all the way to it becoming a unicorn and potentially can keep investing over time when you just have a couple case studies of that. And, and it's even an inbound, like the founder came to me and, and, and wanted to take my money. So just being able to kind of show those, it's uh, it's been a fairly easy sell. I mean... I haven't got a whole lot to 100% commit yet because obviously it's a small fund and it was more of like, yeah, maybe like, let's just get to know each other. I also treated it as, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, emerging managers, they'll raise the fund and then they'll go invest it for a year or two. And then they'll be like, oh, shoot, I have to fundraise again. And then they get back into it. I probably have like one LP call a week, just staying up to date with people, letting them know what I'm doing. I mean, it's just like if you're, in an, if you're a VC investing in companies, it's great to get to know these founders. And then over the course of six months, you're like, wow, okay, like, let's just do this series B right now. Like, I, I, we don't have to really do a whole process. Like, let's just do it because we've gotten to know each other. So it's kind of the same strategy, I guess, with LPs. And it's just, I also love talking to people who like investing. Like, it's just fun to hear what's going on. So that's kind of been the strategy. Yeah. Speaking of inverse thinking, because like one of the things that, you know, a lot of people say is, okay, venture or tech investing really has like three categories. You have growth and crossover. You have life cycle investors who put most of their capital of the funds in A and B. And then you have the seed category. And they're pretty bifurcated because a lot of people say the, the muscles that you need to have or in skills really from a seed to a growth is completely different. But you're doing everything. What's your view on that? And are there things that are just really similar from a analysis standpoint that, you know, you sort of look at it and say, well, it's really not that you can actually invest across the stack and be successful within a, you know, a sole GP or within one person looking at all those type of deals. Yeah, I think as an investor, it's ultimately, especially like a tech investor, it's, is this a platform that has really high returns on invested capital? It's probably the most granular way to put it. You know, will this have a competitive advantage? Like now at, at scale, um, so I think th that just thinking about it that way, it's basically every startup investment that I make. It's you know, could this be a publicly traded company? A lot of different ways to answer that question. But then in terms of like public markets, it's really just you know, if they triple quadruple revenue, how much of that is just incremental cash flow? And do you have a different view than other people? I mean, I think that's really what you have to do to be a good investor is you. You have to have a different view on things, different opinion. Maybe you have to be early. Like you have to be right over time, but you just have to see it before other people. And that's ultimately how you make money as an investor uh, at the end of the day. So 
it's there's a lot of similarities. There are differences. I mean, to be a good public market investor, you listen to a lot of earnings calls. You know, you're making fairly robust spreadsheets. It's like almost unnecessary, but it is important to sort of do that versus, I mean, some of the startups I invest in, I don't make a spreadsheet before I invest, right? Like there's, there's almost no need to. It's more about can they build a product? Like what are they charging for it? Okay, in theory, they could do a billion in revenue, maybe, but that doesn't even matter at this point because nobody's a customer yet. So like the more, the bigger question is just like, can they hire a team? Can they convince someone to sell it? Um, how are they going to grow it? Can they grow it really quickly? A lot of those kind of questions. Um, so there's a lot of similarities. I think you also have some advantages too. Like I, one of the companies I'm investing in, there's a bunch of publicly traded comps that are massive businesses. And these guys have a way better model that I think they've unlocked. And so if you understand the publicly traded model, you're like, holy cow, like if this actually works, this is like, this is going to be insane. And like no other VC is thinking about it that way. They're just like, what's the TAM? What's the LTV to CAC? You know, like, oh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Where'd you go to school? Like, you know, so it's a totally different way of, of kind of thinking about it if you can kind of blend the two. Yeah, I agree with that. And since you have a lot of views that are not consensus, I want to maybe zoom out for a second and look at the market as a whole, particularly since you spent so much time thinking about both the private and public markets. It seems today that if anyone has invested in technology over the last five or 10 years, they've probably done pretty well as a function of this massive economic expansion coupled with the size and scale of these uh, technology companies. And today, there's 750 unicorns, companies worth over a billion, which at one point in time, it was really rare for a company to hit a billion dollar valuation in the private markets. I'm curious in how you look at the the world today, because there are two views right now. One is everything's vastly overvalued as a function of the massive supply of capital out there chasing yields, and it just can't continue. And then there's the other school of thought that, yeah, while valuations are perhaps ahead of themselves across the uh, the entire board, a lot of these companies eventually will grow to a point where some of these valuations will look like a bargain one day. And the the scope of what a successful exit is, is going to be redefined forever. Where do you sit on the spectrum? And what's your view of what the next two to three years might look like? Yeah, I mean, I think we've probably had a lot of multiple expansion, you know, that people are paying on revenue, cash flow, users or hype, <laughs> however you want to think about the thing you're paying a multiple on. I don't expect a lot of multiple expansion in the future, maybe even some contraction. I mean, I think it's just about finding businesses that are growing really fast that are actually economical. That's ultimately what I try to do. And like if you, you know, a company growing 100% month over month, if they can truly sustain that, I don't want to say the valuation doesn't matter, but it almost doesn't. Like it might seem high, but then a year later, it might seem like, wow, we paid half of this month's revenue. <laughs> it was the valuation that we paid. So it's really just about finding good businesses. And I do tend to skew away from things that are extremely insane. If it's a category that's a thesis in the slide of another VC's LP deck, I'm probably not investing in it. Um, that's kind of, I guess, how I'd think about it. Uh, and basically, you just want to find those things before they become super hyped up, like invest in a company that's growing 20% month over month, but is going to be growing 100% in a year because of new products, new hires, 
changes in the market, timing, stuff like that. That's, that's kind of more how I think about it. And then you actually, you, I, I get a little more comfortable investing in, in those kind of hyper growth companies because you've been there and maybe you understand it a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, I do. And I do think we're going to see the public and private markets just continuing to blend. I mean, essentially, it's like the liquidity, pre the illiquidity premium that's in the private markets is kind of going away. Uh, and that and that's ultimately why all these funds are moving in. They're just like, why are we paying 40 times revenue when we could pay 20 in private or, or 30? And then that's where all the VCs get upset because they're like throwing everything out of whack. And the public market investors are like, wow, we're going to get 30% IRR. What a steal. Um, and so I think that will keep happening. I think it's getting easier and easier to raise a small fund. I mean, as more capital, if you just look at, if you're an LP doing analysis, you have a billion dollar portfolio, you have to distribute some, you've got all your buckets, equities projecting 5% returns, real estate projecting whatever, fixed income projecting 5% returns. Shoot, we got to earn 7% a year. Where are we going to get the extra 20%? Oh, it's in venture capital because like historically it's done it. So it just makes sense to put a bunch of money in. So there's just going to be more money coming in from the top until LPs decide they don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and, and that flows down to the bottom where someone like me can pretty easily raise money from other downstream investors who essentially just want deal flow. I mean, like, a, you know, a lot of these smaller funds are essentially scout funds for someone, whether it's a hedge fund, an LP that wants to do directs, another VC firm, GPs at these funds, maybe friends at companies who want to invest in the SPVs when there's breakouts. Like that's ultimately what all these small funds are doing at the end of the day. So I, I just think, and then it's getting easier and easier to access that capital. So to your earlier kind of question of like, yeah, it just makes sense. It's kind of fragmenting. And, you know, I think networks are getting ripped apart where it's all, it's more and more on the internet. We're seeing you know, you can make a venture back business in Georgia, like in Russia or in like Tanzania and Africa, like, you know, instead of just San Francisco and maybe the San Francisco one, that's a trillion dollar outcome. But, you know, maybe in like Peru, it's like, yeah, it's like a $10 billion company. You know, it's it's still an awesome outcome, depending on the economics of who's of who's doing it, and who's investing. So, yeah, I think it's just going to keep opening up. But I do worry about a wipeout in terms of 20 March 2020 happening again, markets not recovering, um, which is why I've been kind of really thinking a lot about institutional LP base. I just think it's really important to have those long term partners. That's I want to be a long term partners to founders to my investors. Um, so I think that's important to kind of get to. And that's what LPs want to. Yeah, it's it's hard to make a case that there's never going to be some level of uh, a recessionary environment. It's just cycles historically have never lasted forever. This has been one of the longest uh, economic expansions. So you start to feel it. Although, you know, I will say a lot of us were thinking back in 2015, we're like, okay, there's a bubble now. Now we're going to, 2016 is going to be a bad year. And then 2017, 18, 19. And of course, if you and I were having this conversation in March, we'd be like, here it is. You know, this, it's going to be a couple lean years and that didn't happen. So it's going to be an exciting time to see. Tech obviously is, you know, and where innovation is, it's a long term effort that is not going to stop. And it's just a matter of how do you future-proof yourself? Like we saw people that were really successful venture funds not be able to raise an 08, 09 because they didn't have the right type of LPs. So it certainly makes sense to um, to get some of those institutionals. I want to end with our heat check. And I have three questions that I feel like the first one, you know, we've kind of talked about a lot of this stuff, but What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned as an investor in the in the time you've, you've invested in startups? 
I would say the most counterintuitive thing, if you look at a lot of some of the biggest outcomes, breakout companies, they weren't necessarily always backed by who you think of as the best VCs, which the narrative is that those are the best funds and they are really good, but you can also build a great business if you don't raise capital from one of these brand name funds. Eventually, you know, the numbers will speak for themselves and investors will back and support it. And if it's really good, I mean, you can build a 50 billion, hundred billion dollar business. And there's been so many cases of, you know, someone struggled to raise a seed round, a bunch of angels, or it was maybe led by a fund that was, you know, not thought of as one of these tier one great firms. Um, but eventually those other firms did follow on and come in. Um, and, and so, I think we kind of get away from that a little bit too much. Everyone thinks you have to raise money from whatever the, the top funds. I just don't think it's necessarily 100% true. Like, they're good investors and they're, they'll invest in really good companies, but don't let it dissuade you if you're a founder and you, you struggle to raise capital from certain certain names, certain brands. Yeah, especially in, today, in today's world where there's so many different options. I, I have seen some of the best companies in the world. And if you look at their cap table, particularly early on, they're not the traditional tier ones. And so there's some, another guest on our show that said the same thing. I know it's been early and you probably haven't missed on too many deals and probably don't have a big anti-portfolio, but is there a deal that you missed on that you look back in the last couple of years and like, okay, well, I missed it, but not necessarily like that you just missed it, but did you learn something from that experience that you took away and, and will help you if this type of situation comes up again? What company was that and what did you learn from it? I I would say, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but there's a company that was probably the biggest beneficiary of COVID, uh, like startup, that I remember someone mentioned it to me in DM back in late 2019. I was like, oh, it looks cool. I just like never really looked it up. <laughs> and I remembered it when I was like, oh, wow, I probably should have at least tried to talk to the founder. I guess that's the big miss. Um, I, I mean, I think one of my other m- misses has been not sizing positions and doubling down into the winners fast enough or aggressively enough. And I I mean, I think part of it's just a function of it's been kind of I've had weird capital situations. Um, and again, that's partially why I'm trying to get to a really permanent institutional LP base where, you know, I look at hypothetically what it could have looked like if I because there'll be cases where founders like, what do you want to invest in this next round? You can invest whatever you want. And I do like a 100K check instead of Two million that I probably would have liked to do. So that's been another really big lesson and almost a miss, honestly, is just not doubling down on the companies you have a lot of conviction and almost thinking I needed to get more shots on goal to just kind of prove that I could do it. Um, but I think now I'm at a point where I really just need to, you know, start all, all the best practices that all these seasoned VCs tell me about. I'm like, wow, I need to actually start doing that now. <laughs> well, speaking about seasoned VCs. Is there an investor out there that you particularly aspire toward that inspires you? If so, like who is it and what about them that resonates with you? I would say Bill Gurley, uh, probably kind of a, maybe that's a cop-out answer, but I, I like the way he you know, publicly talks about what he's thinking about. And I just think he's a very good investor. I mean, I want, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be someone who, you know, people say, oh, Turner, yeah, he's a really good investor. It's like one of one of the best. And that's ultimately what I kind of aspire to. So that'd probably be the answer. There, there's a lot of other people, you know, I, 
I like different things about what they do or different philosophies they have. You know, maybe I've never even met them before. And maybe I like disagree with a lot of other things that they say or do. And I'm like, yeah, Persia's is a pretty good investor. Like, there's a lot of things you can learn from from how they think. So, yeah. I, and that's one of the things I love about investing is, I mean, you can learn just as much as a VC. You can learn just as much from other VCs as you can from public market investors, fixed income investors, real estate investors, like all these different asset classes. You can really learn a lot from um, and whether it's just how to think about investing in your portfolio, but also thinking about, I mean, especially now, one of the big themes a lot of VCs are chasing is like unlocking liquidity in different asset classes. It's like, let's talk to some people that specialize in similar asset classes and, and learn how they think about it. So learning from other people is one of the one of the things I like the most about investing. So there's a lot out there. When I do read a lot of the stuff and, you know, I talked to a lot of guests on the show, I don't know if agree at first with everything people say, and, and then you sort of think about it and you, you, know, you apply your own beliefs on what makes sense and what doesn't, but it does make you think. And DC is this continuous learning game where you're always confronting your own biases and challenging your own assumptions. And I think people like Bill, look, Bill was a public analyst before he was a, a VC, and he's never been afraid of actually speaking against some of the craziness that happens where a lot of people buy into the hype factory. And so I'm not surprised that you mentioned the name. There are people across many different asset categories I also look at that are just super interesting. This has been great, man. I have really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, congrats on getting the, uh, the first fund. Look forward to seeing uh, both more memes, but also the uh, the growth of Banana Capital over the, uh, the next few years. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Turner. To learn more about him and Banana Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 